Well, again, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're glad that you're here today. If you want to grab a Bible, I got to tell you, we're going to be walking through some thick weeds, not weeds, but plants. It's the passage we're going to go into in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It's dense. So grab a Bible. Hopefully you have one in front of you. If you didn't bring one, there, is, there are Bibles in front of you. You can grab one of those. I think it's on page like 981, something in there. You can find it. But we're in uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And here's the question. You ready? How good is good enough? When it comes to being in the presence of God, how good, how good is good enough to enter God's presence? You know, when I grew up, all my relatives were in Massachusetts. Uh, I was born in Massachusetts, raised in North Dallas, so we'd always go back to New England in the summertime. And some of my earliest memories are of vacations with my family, being my grandparents in New England. My grandmother lived on Cape Cod, picturesque area, in a little town called Sandwich, Massachusetts. And I remember in Sandwich, Massachusetts, at the high school, they'd always have this kind of carnival-esque fair. You know those cheap carnivals that show up in the 18-wheelers and they kind of open up? Everything looks really rickety. But to a kid, I mean, it's the world. It's excitement. It's joy. Well, at this fair, I was too young to get in. My grandmother lived in this neighborhood. There were all these kids in the neighborhood, and they were all like my brother's age, two or three years older. And so I remember going to that fair for the first time and coming up to the front, kind of like the Griswolds at Wally World. You, no? Okay. Anyways, and you go, up to the, you go up, and you can't get in because it said, really, to ride these rides, you need to be about this height. And if you're not above this age, you have to be accompanied with a parent. Well, no kid wants to be accompanied with a parent at a high, in a high school parking lot at one of those fairs. And so I had to go back with my grandmother to go bake cookies while my brother and all their friends, all these guys, got the chance to hang out and have a great time. And then I'd hear about it, see all the stuff, the toys they brought back. Man, I missed out. So... The next summer, I thought, okay, this is my summer. Wasn't old enough. Still wasn't there. So two summers go by, and finally, I'm so excited. I know this summer I'm in. I'm good enough. I'm going to make it. And guess what happened? No, the kids didn't want to go. The standard changed. I could now get in, but that wasn't the place to be. And so I never got to go to the fair because, see, how good is good enough? I could get in, but that was no longer the standard. And I was no longer in the in crowd. See, that's what Paul's dealing with in Philippians chapter 3. He's asking the question, how good is good enough? And then, for us, what do you look to when it comes to your goodness? When it comes to God's acceptance of you, what is it that you see in yourself, in your identity... And how you relate to God, what makes you good enough to enter into God's presence? So let's jump into Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse, in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you again is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are this circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself really have reason for confidence in the flesh. 
If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered loss in all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Let me ask for God's help. Father, as we walk into this world, there's a lot of messages about what we need to be, what we need to have, how we need to look. And Lord, all of that is a false righteousness. That we build ourselves up in this world with things that we think from whatever voice will make us good enough. And yet, Lord, you require not a goodness of our own, but a goodness that is born in us, birthed into us, through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. It's an alien goodness that comes into us and is born in us and works through us. And yet, Father, it is so contrary to everything else we have gained, earned, and accomplished in this life. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and understand how through Christ, Father, you see us in a completely different light. And may that, that difference, that new life, change the way we see ourselves, the way we see you, and the way we see others. Father, ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Watch out for the dogs. Now, not D-A-W-G, but D-O-G. Now, when he's saying watch out for the dogs, he's not talking about critters, animals. He's talking about a kind of person. And the kind of person he says we need to watch out for is the kind of person who puts their confidence with God in themselves. Or as you notice in the text, he says, look out for those who put their confidence in the flesh. At the end of verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. Now, let me explain just historically what's going on. The dogs were those who were Jewish Christians. They had trusted in Jesus, because remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So he's fulfilling the Old Testament promises. He's constituting Israel, the people of God, around faith in what he has done. And so Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so those who were Jewish Christians said, to really follow Jesus, you first need to become a Jew. You need to practice the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. So every time you see the word law in the English Bible, in this passage, it actually says Torah. So they would practice the laws of the first five books of the Bible. They would get, men would get circumcised. They would obey the dietary codes. And what these guys, these dogs would say is to really know God, to really be loved by God, you have to trust in Jesus plus all this good stuff. And they saw righteousness as being good. Paul describes righteousness 
as being good enough. See, they described righteousness as being good, meaning something that they could do on their own. And what they were trusting in, in many ways, was their ethnicity. That because we're Jewish, we're the promised people, we've accomplished certain things, and therefore God's favor and his love is on us. And so based on that, they had a self-identity that changed the way they saw themselves, saw God, and saw others. And Paul is saying your self-identity, your righteousness, it stinks. Because see, in the Jewish terms, dogs were dirty. And he's calling those who think they're clean because they're doing the right things dirty. It's kind of an irony. Because dogs were not pets that you had in your house. Dogs were vermin. They ate trash. They ate junk. They were disgusting. He's calling those who think they can clean themselves up by their good living and by their religion, you're not good, you're dogs. And you're actually polluting those who are good enough in Christ. And so he's describing this word righteousness. Now we're going to get into that and discover what that means in just a minute. But jump down with me in verses 4 through 6, because in verses 4 through 6, what Paul's going to do is he's going to explain that all the things that the dogs wanted, he had, and he had to such a degree and to such a, such a height that he was the valedictorian, if you could say, of the dogs. If there was one that was the champion, the top, the, the best of them, the CEO, Paul's saying, hey, guys, if these are the things you live for, I had them, and I had them all in spades. So watch this in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Meaning, if you're looking to yourself, and if you're looking to what you do, and assuming God loves me on the basis of what I do, Paul's saying, I did it well. I was the best of the blessed. If we're playing who is the most Jewish game, I win. And so here's his resume. So he walks down this list of accomplishments. First of all, circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he was born to Torah-observant parents. He's not a convert to Judaism. Instead, from the beginning, from his birth, he is very much circumcised on the eighth day. Then he adds of the people of Israel, and here's a key phrase, of the tribe Benjamin. There were two tribes in the Old Testament that stayed faithful. Jesus came out of one, the tribe of Judah. The second was the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's saying, I won the genetic lottery. It's not that I'm just a Hebrew or an Israelite. I am the right kind of Israelite. I am one who is of the tribe of Benjamin. My ancestors, we all remain faithful to the Davidic covenant. Jesus is a part of that, so he's saying, hey, I'm ethnically pure. Then he goes on, and he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, why would he use that twice? Because, see, in the first century, many Hebrews, many Jews were Hellenistic Jews. See, the culture in that day was a Greek culture. And so it was very easy to adopt Greek culture as the water that you kind of swam in. And Paul's saying, I'm not simply a Greek Jew, I retained my ethnicity. I stayed pure. I resisted the temptation to conform to society. And then he goes on and says, as to my accomplishments in the law, I was a Pharisee, the highest of academic achievement, those who were OCD about obeying God's law and created laws around God's law. And then finally, as to, uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I have a clean slate. Now, he's not saying he was sinless. Because Paul knows and understands the brokenness of the human condition. 
What he's saying is I lived in Jerusalem and so when I messed up, I made it right. I went to the temple, I experienced purification, I sacrificed in every single way. I lived as a Jew, I sacrificed as a Jew. In terms of confidence in myself, I win. His resume as a Jew was perfect. See, what is a resume? A resume, when you submit a resume, is an argument, isn't it? When you apply to a university and you fill out an application, in a sense, it's a resume. And you're saying to that university, look at the qualifications that make me good, that make me acceptable, that make me good enough that you should give me money to study at your university. That's a resume. When we turn a resume application to a job, we're saying to that employer, these are the skills and talents that you need, and you need them to such an extent that you're willing to pay a great deal so that I'm a part of your organization. What you're arguing for is not to get a job. You're arguing for your righteousness. When you apply to a university, when you say to that girl, will you marry me? You're waiting for her to say, you are righteous. <laughs> yes. What does that mean? You're acceptable. You're good enough. Now, what, what did you argue? How did you, get her to, how did you get her to say yes? You presented righteousness. Now, certainly in a broken relationship, if you presented money or you presented, and this could be on the flip side too, whatever it is, you present beauty, you present all these things, and you say, if you see these things in me and you see me as good enough, then before your eyes I am righteous. And Paul is saying, do not trust in yourself to make God look at you and say you're good enough. Because what we do on our own, we're never going to attain that level of righteousness. We need something more than that. And so look down in verse 7. So he, he moves from that and says, I want to be found in Christ. So whatever I had gained in the past, I count as loss. For the sake of Christ. Now, the language that he's using is accounting language. And on one side, you have the assets. On the other side, you have the liabilities. And he's looking at his resume, and he said, you know what? I live for this stuff. I ran people over to get this title, to get this position, to build this business, to marry this woman, to accomplish these things. All of these were my assets, my education, my ethnicity, my intelligence, the people I knew, the success I had, my 401k, whatever it was. I used to see all of those things as the assets that made me comfortable when I walked out in the world. When I met Jesus, when I met Jesus, I realized all the stuff I was building my life upon were toothpicks compared to the foundation of Jesus Christ. I realized I was building my stuff on things that Christ died for. I was building my stuff on the things that necessitated the death of Christ. Because see, the stuff I build my life upon, it led to pride. It led to provoking and condemning others. Because see, when your righteousness, when your standing is in what you have, well, sure, you should look down on others. If they were only as smart as I was, if they're only as wise as I am, you can look down on someone else and say, if you just worked as hard as I did, then you could accomplish this. But in Christ, all of that is taken away because our standing before God isn't based on the ladders we've climbed or what we've accomplished. Instead, he's going to tell us it's based on what Jesus has done and what Jesus has done alone, meaning no matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced, none of those things define you. 
Let me say this again. No matter what you've done, whether good or bad, no matter what's happened to you, no matter what you've experienced, none of those things in God's presence defines you. Now, what you're going to have to do, that's a truth, but we have to begin to live that truth out. And so what Paul's going to start to do is describe what it looks like to live out the truth that I'm accepted through Christ and I'm accepted through Christ alone. So, so watch this. Let's jump down to verse 8. And so he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and then count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. See, to be a Christian means we have gained Christ. And now Paul looks at all the stuff that he used to say, this is, this is good stuff. This makes me significant. This makes me attractive. It makes me beautiful. He looks at that stuff and he calls it, ready for this word? You need to know this. It's the only expletive in the New Testament, so you need to know this. It's the word scubalon. Scubalon. All the stuff that I used to live for, now that I'm righteous in Christ, all of it is worthless. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't mean that it's evil. But see, evil in the New Testament or evil in a biblical concept is looking to something other than God to give you what only God can give. Good things can be evil. A marriage. If you're looking to your marriage to give you what only God can, if you're looking to a relationship to give you what only God can give, that's the definition of evil. You're looking to something other than God to give you what God alone can give. And Paul looks at his resume and he says, compared to knowing Christ, and notice the language, he says surpassing. Surpassing. So that day where you got the job, you felt elated? Surpassing. The day she said yes or he said yes? Surpassing. The day that whatever that is, whatever that day was, he is saying the elation and the joy of knowing Christ surpasses everything in this world that I once thought was gain. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to count it as loss. And he says, I'm willing to count it as loss in verse 9 that I may be found in him. And here's the language we need to understand. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And by coming from the law, meaning coming from my obedience to the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. Paul says, and here's his definition of being a Christian. He uses it 164 times in the New Testament. You ready? His definition of a Christian is someone who is in Christ. That is his favorite phrase for who we are. We are those by faith who are now in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Now, we don't need to unpack just a little bit about what that means. So quickly, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, here's how Paul describes it. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, why do we set our minds on things above? Because here's your identity. You died. So trusting in yourself doesn't make sense if you're dead. Christ is now your life. So he goes, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What's my identity? Folks, you're not simply sinners saved by grace. You were at one point. If you were in Christ, what defines you? Your sin or Christ? 164 times. Why does Paul have to tell me, hundred, Jason, 164 times, you are not what you've done? 
You are not. Your value isn't based on the fact that you couldn't get into that stupid fair at the age of six. And you know how that stupid fair becomes more than a stupid fair, doesn't it? Because then at the age of 10, you get rejected for this, the age of 15, age of 50, and you're still living out of that same lie. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. No. To say I'm simply a sinner saved by grace, what is the defining thing that sets my identity apart? Sinner. If you are in Christ, you're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a saint that is now in Christ Jesus. We have to start seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. A lot of the challenges that we face in changing is we haven't allowed this righteousness from God to be the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. Instead, we're seeing ourselves through a lens that says, I still have to do it myself. Now, let me explain what that means. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, here's how Paul describes what it means to be in Christ. And the language is absolutely important. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, let me define that, you're a new creation. What does that mean? The old 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, whatever you built your life on, my resume, put it away. It's gone. The old is gone. The new has come. Here's the way, way to think about that. The difference between you before Christ and now in Christ is the difference between a worm that crawls and climbs, it's called a caterpillar, and a butterfly. A butterfly is not a worm with wings. You are not a sinner saved by grace. A butterfly is a new creation. See, a worm, uh, a caterpillar, used to be defined by crawling, climbing. And then what happened? There was a new creation. There was a chrysalis, a cocoon, a new birth being born again. And that actually word morphe in the Greek, becoming like Christ, that's the word that's used in the New Testament to describe the change that's happened in us. That when your faith is put in Christ, in this moment called regeneration, it's as if we're in this cocoon, and we come out a new creation. You're not a worm with wings. You're now a new being. Now, there is this old mentality that says I should be climbing and crawling, but see, the Spirit of God saying, no, you should be flying. That's not who you are. The reason we fall into sin is we forget who we are. We forget the righteousness we have. We don't see ourselves rightly. One of the biggest problems we have is we're living out of a false righteousness. Now, can I shock you a little bit today? Throw your Christian world upside down just as mine was. Your problem is not sin. We think it's sin that separates us from God. Now, Jesus died for your sins once for all. What's the language? The righteous for the unrighteous. What separates you from God is self-righteousness. It'll separate you outside the church. And listen, there's a lot of self-righteousness inside the church. Self-righteousness is saying, I do this, I am this, I have this, therefore I am better than others. In Christ, that goes away. It's called grace. That my standing isn't something I earned. Rather, grace is is God's riches, G-R-A, right, at Christ's expense. The reason I am who I am, the reason I stand where I stand is because of the riches of Christ given to me 
as an act of mercy, meaning God didn't give me what I deserve, but rather he gave me what I did not deserve. And because of that, my identity and the way I see myself has now changed. To be in Christ means you have a new righteousness. You have a new righteousness. Now, now what does that look like? Okay, that, you've been wondering why these, these glasses are up here, I'm sure. Well, let me introduce you to Han Solo, and he is in the Hoth system gear, if you're in the Star Wars theme. Because I figure this is what we're going to look like in a couple months anyways as it gets colder. But Han Solo is in the Hoth gear, and I'm going to put Han Solo in Christ. What is it? And you're going to really be impressed by this, I know. This is really, really great scientific stuff. So anyways, this is what it means to be in Christ. It means to be in Christ. Now, look at this. Think of this. The Father can only see Han through the water. And Han can only see out through the water. To be in Christ is, on the one hand, for the Father only to see us through Christ. But what is change in the Christian life? It's simply learning to see everything through Christ. It's learning to see everything through Christ. Here's what happens, though. Here's what happens. Even though we're completely accepted in Christ, a false righteousness steps into your life. As soon as a false right, and it doesn't have to take much, as soon as a false righteousness steps into your life, I no longer, God can still see. Now, understand, this illustration doesn't work perfectly because it's still clean from God's perspective, <laughs> right? This is still us. But from your perspective, when your righteousness isn't in Jesus, you see everyone differently, you see yourself differently, and you see God differently. Let me explain. Nationalism is a righteousness. Ethnicity is a righteousness. Paul was saying, God doesn't love you because you're a Jew. Well, listen, God doesn't love you because you're an American. And often within this Christian circles, there's this mentality of being an American first and being a Christian second. What does that mean? I make decisions based on my Americanness and not my being in Christ. If Americanism is a thing, and that's what makes me secure, that's what makes me strong, then I'm gonna make decisions in life. I'm gonna value people on the basis of how it affects my Americanism and not how it impacts the kingdom of God. Now, I'm still in Christ. God still loves you. You're still a child of God. But you're clouded because there's a false righteousness. There's something that you're seeing through, and it changes the way you see others. And you're fighting for a kingdom that is temporal. It's passing. You're, you're devaluing people that God deeply values. And you're justifying it. And you feel like there's no problem. Why? Because you're righteous. When you're righteous, you don't need to repent. You don't need to repent. You're arrogant. You're prideful. And this is not just about American. It's just one application point. You take anything and you make it your identity, it changes the way you see others. But when the cross of Christ is your identity, you will walk in humility and in courage. What does that mean? Humility. I'm not accepted by God because I got it right or I got it wrong. I'm accepted by God because of Christ's sacrifice and his sacrifice alone, which means I added nothing. And therefore, all of us are on equal playing ground. Regardless if I'm an American with this kind of salary or this place or this position, every human being is at the same vantage point because God died for all of us. Therefore, all of us are loved and pursued by God. But courage, 
If I added nothing to it and God loved me and he was willing to do this for me, then I walk with God into the world with a confidence that I know that God loves me. I know that God has pursued me because of what he has done in Christ. When we lose the righteousness of Christ, we become, we're still Christians, but you see everything differently. What is bitterness? That's what bitterness looks like. Bitterness is a false sense of righteousness. She is worthless. I am valuable because she did this to me. What is that? It's a false righteousness. When you have that in your life, it'll change the way you see yourself. It'll change the way you see God. It'll change. It'll change the way you see others. What do we need to do? We need to repent. (laughs) That's all repentance is. God, help me to see myself as you see me. Father, forgive me, not just for my sin, but for the fact that that, that, that my sin says something about who I am, that it's okay for me to be this person. It's okay for me to live like this. I want to see myself as you see me. Paul says when that change happened, when he started seeing himself in the world and God through the lens of what Christ has done, everything began to change. And here's the evidence of what that change looks like. You ready for this? Here's how Paul describes it. He says, first of all, I want to know Christ. The evidence of being in Christ and being covered in God's righteousness is a passion to know him. Now realize the word gnosko, know, in the Greek is not simply to know in an academic sense. It's to know in a bedroom sense. It's the kind of knowledge that a husband, a wife, it's an intimacy kind of knowledge. The Bible is not ashamed of that. And it says the knowledge we are to have with the Father is a depth of intimacy and relationship that parallels the intimacy between a man and a woman. And you see that unashamedly throughout the entire Bible. Just read the Song of Solomon. Just read the Psalms, Psalm 63. God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry. God, everything I have is a dry and weary land compared to you. He says, on my bed, I meditate on you. I think of you through the water. That sounds like a a teenage girl, right? Thinking about this guy or this guy thinking about this girl. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And he says, my soul will be satisfied as with the richness of foods. What do you describe that as? That's knowing. Why does Scripture constantly say, taste and see that the Lord is good? It's one thing to know the properties and the chemistry of honey. It's another to taste that honey is good. The knowing that Paul says he has because he is in Christ is an intimacy of knowledge. Read biographies, folks. Read biographies of men and women who have followed Christ, and you will find a rapture. You will find an ecstasy. You will find a joy that at times is a little shameless to the point that they can't even describe the joy that they have in knowing Christ. Paul says, my question in life is not, is this right or is this wrong? His question is, will this gain me more of Christ or will this cause me to lose a deeper experience of Christ? That's a much better question. If you are in Christ, it means we have the privilege of deep intimacy with God. Let me say something. Don't give up on that. Stop. How, how many of us have given up on that? I mean, you have to raise your hand, but I know we're all in here. It takes discipline. 
It's not easy. Don't give up on that. That is the joy that Paul says. Realize, where's, where's Paul right now when he's saying, I want to know Christ? He's in a prison cell, folks. You could add whatever you want to on top of that. You know, he's divorced. He's, he's what? What is he? What, where is he? He is in total brokenness. Everything he's loved has been taken from him. And he says, in that moment, even though in my shame, even though all my world is falling apart, my righteousness isn't, and so I stand strong. And when your righteousness in Christ, the world may shake, but your foundation will not. I want to know Christ. Do not give up on that. And when you've given up on that, it's probably because you're isolated. Can I add that? We do take American ideas, and individualism is not a Christian value. Rugged individualism is definitely a Colorado value, but it's not going to work for those who are in Christ. You've got to have people around you say, Jason, hey, your level of knowledge with Christ isn't enough. And all I want to do is to pray, Father, would you fill his vision, would you fill his heart, would you fill his desires with a a richer meaning of what it means to know you? I want to know Christ. But then he goes on, the power of his resurrection. Now, what is that? Now we're moving from experiential knowledge to resemblance. Because see, here's what I would be. If I'm tracking with Paul, right, I want to know Christ. Yes, Paul, the power of his resurrection, which means I want the power that raised Jesus from the dead working through me. I'm like, amen, man, that's awesome. That sounds cool. I want some of that power. Then he says to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. No, I'm ready to stop there. Hey, I want to know Christ. That sounds cool. I want the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You cannot change, you cannot remove the power that raised Jesus from the dead from these last two phrases. Participation in his suffering and then becoming, which is the word morphe. Remember we talked about the caterpillar? Becoming the butterfly. Morphe into his death. What he's describing is a pattern. There's a pattern to the Christian life and Jesus sets that pattern for us. What's the pattern? Well, that's what chapter two is about. Remember that? Have this mind that is in you. What's your mindset? If your mindset is Christ and on the righteousness of Christ, you're gonna have the same attitude. Who Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality as God something to hold on to, something to grasp, but became nothing. Taking on the very nature of the servant, being found in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became, what's the word? Obedient. If you obey Jesus in our culture, you're going to suffer. Because there's going to be people who say you're missing out. You're not going to belong. You're not going to be at the fair because they're saying this is what it means to be accepted. Are you okay walking in that? Why was Jesus rejected? Because he was obedient. That's the only reason. He wasn't a jerk. If you're rejected because you're a jerk, that's on you, okay? That's not Christian. I'm sorry, you're just a jerk. And you need to examine your rights. Are you with me on that? Because a lot of times I think what Christians are saying they're being persecuted for, that's just your own sin and self-righteousness. That's not Jesus. But he's saying, when I'm obedient to him, I want to become like him in his death. What did Jesus say is the picture of the Christian life? You ready for this? If you want to find life, you got to lose it. But if you lose life, meaning lose self-righteousness, you're going to find it in me And in the gospel, what is the gospel? Jesus, God set apart his own interests for ours. And because of that, we were adopted as children of God. He changed our identity. That's the Christian life. It is one of obedience through suffering. 
It's obedience through suffering. Because if you live in a world that doesn't value what you value, you're always gonna be outside the city gates. That's where Jesus was crucified. That's where the Christian live. We're always walking between two worlds. We're not citizens of America. We're citizens of heaven who are good citizens of America. So, so we wanna know Christ. We wanna know, we wanna change the power of his resurrection. Here's the last thing. The last thing he says in verse 11, and, and that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Meaning Paul had a hope. His storyline is that he's facing execution and he's in a prison and he may find that his life is going to the guillotine or however, the crucifix. He could, he could die a very physically painful death or he could walk out and walk back to Philippi and rejoice with all his buds. He said, neither of those are my fear or my hope. My hope is that one day, I'm going to experience the resurrection from the dead. That's my Super Bowl. That's my World Series. That's my whatever it is. That's my righteousness. Because what's going to happen on that day is on that day, I'm going to stand before the Father. I'm going to stand with the Son. I'm going to be in the presence of God, fully redeemed, fully cleansed, fully seeing who God is and seeing others. That's the day where Jesus comes back, not to wipe away the earth, but to renew everything that sin has destroyed. And the book of Revelation, it's described this way. On that day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Neither sh there shall be mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. God has made all things new. How is it, as we close today, how do you see yourself? If you're fighting bitterness, unforgiveness, Remember, all you've done is not simply have sinned. You're walking in a false sense of righteousness. What would it look like for you today? Simply through the power of the Spirit, say, Father, help me to see myself as you see me. As I face sin, as you face the temptations in your life, do not think that you got this and that you can change. As soon as you step on that land, you're a sinner saved by grace. You're still a sinner and you're trying to save yourself. What are we? If we are in Christ, you're a new creation who struggles with sin. But sin does not have power over you. Christ has power over you. Because if you're in Christ, then the power of Christ dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You're not, you're not depending. You're not seeing yourself as, as, you, as you really are. And I'll tell you, most of the struggles we have, most of our lack of confidence, I'll tell you, I, you know, I'll close with this. I think my greatest struggle was the fear of man. Every Sunday, I'm over here, and sometimes I'm not singing, I'm praying, and I'm going to Peter, and I'm saying, you know, Lord, help me to speak the words that I need to speak, but not to speak them as man speaks, but as you speak, and to do this for the glory of God, not for the fear of man. I had a strong level of fear of man, and I have to fight that, because see, what it says is, Jason, you're okay if this person thinks you're okay. You know what? My eyes are open. You can't give me anything. I can sit now across from somebody and love them and sacrifice. And whether they hate me or not, you know, it, it's disturbing. But it doesn't matter. Why? The God of the universe calls me righteous. And he calls me his son. And what that allow, allows me to do is to take all the things that I once valued in you, all the things that I think, and my wife will tell you, I used to chase people like crazy. It was nuts. Just a, just a fool chasing after people. Because I thought I needed them. But when Christ came in and he changed the way that I see things, I could now love them. I could now care for them because the things they had, 
were no longer things I needed. I got it all. And when you got it all, you're humble. You can admit, you know, these, this is how I sin. I can tell you in front of all these people today that this is my brokenness. And, and you're probably going to see it in me. You're going to see it sometime. You'll see a little tinge of darkness right there and ch- chasing the approval of man. But I can have courage because I haven't overcome this because I'm better. I've overcome it because I know who I am in Christ, and that is the power that allows me to walk out. Hey, as we close today, would you just ask the Father, what is it? What is the false righteousness I'm seeing myself through? And then just repent and say, Lord, help me to see myself as you see me, and then through that, the test is, ready for the test? It's how you see others. If you see yourself rightly in Christ, you will love others as you love yourself. It's all about righteousness, and it's all about what Christ has done. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for Paul's words, and I pray in Jesus' name that uh, in Galatians, he says, you know, if Christ, if righteousness, if righteousness could be gained through our obedience, through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Father, forgive us for nullifying the death of Jesus by thinking we can do it on our own. When we walk in any sense of righteousness before what Jesus has done, that we are covered, clothed, redeemed, cleansed. We're not just sinners saved by grace. We are saints that sometimes struggle with sin. Lord, help us to see us as as you do. And then in that, Father, may that lead us to this place where we would say today and pray, Father, I wanna know Christ. I wanna know Christ. I wanna know the power of his resurrection. Father, I'm I'm risking to say I wanna know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I wanna morphe, become like him in his death. So somehow, one day, my hope may be that I would stand on the day of resurrection, to stand in your presence and acknowledge as we, we see you every, that Jesus' name is above, above every name and all the things that we once had in the prophet column. God, they're, they're good, but they're nothing compared to you. And so, Father, would you lead us into that? And if there's someone here today that doesn't, doesn't know you, I pray in Jesus' name, they'd cry out and say, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I wanna set aside all the things that I once once said were gain, and I move them across, and I repent, and I say they were lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Father, meet us here this morning. And then, Lord, for those areas of struggle, would we stop managing sin, and would we start walking in intimacy? Help us, Father, in Jesus' name.